In the United States, in the 21st century, there have been six mass school shootings They've all, that have killed more than 10 people. All six of them have been done by boys who have been dad-deprived, from Sandy Hook right on through to the Texas shooting. The recent horrific Texas school shooting has prompted heated debate about gun control, school safety, and mental illness. But there's one key issue not being discussed, says Warren Farrell, author of The Boy Crisis, Why Our Boys Are Struggling and What We Can Do About It. This is also the single biggest predictor of suicide and one of the biggest causes of mental illness in boys and drug addiction in boys. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellick. Warren Farrell, such a pleasure to have you back on American Thought Leaders. Oh, I'm so looking forward to our discussions. I always love them. Well, Warren, I've been thinking about you lately in the wake of this uh, recent mass shooting. And one of the things that came to my attention, um, because this is such an important issue, was that this, this young man that did this horrific act uh, was, as many of them that have done it over the years, dad deprived and dad deprived in a very serious way and this is you know and this is you've been writing about this yes yes indeed you know and i, I see every time we have a you know a mass shooting we hear you know in the buffalo one we heard this replacement theory style hatred and then you know the next time we hear access to guns and the next time it's um, access to toxic politics and poor family values and violence in the media and violence in video games and mental illness well you know how could you possibly um have anybody do a mass shooting and not be mentally ill but our the key thing is that our daughters live in the same families with the same family values they're exposed to the same replacement theory style hatred and toxic politics. They're, they're exposed to the same guns, the same video games, the same media. They suffer similar mental illnesses. Uh, yet our daughters are not doing the killing. Our sons are. And so, and no one is looking at, I believe, the two primary causes. One is what's happening with our sons. Uh, why, why our sons? This is not just our sons in the United States. But you know when they, you know when there are high percentages of killings and mass shootings uh, in other countries as well, uh, there the, it is our boys there. So we're, we're ignoring what I call you know the boy crisis. Boy crisis is in the 53 largest developed nations in the United States. There have been six mass shootings that we uh, that that have been mass school shootings. They've all, that have killed more than 10 people. All six of those mass school shootings that have killed more than 10 people have been done, A, by boys, and all six of them have been done by boys who have been dad-deprived, from Sandy Hook right on through to the Texas uh, shooting. And so, and no one is looking at the dad deprivation as an issue um, to even consider no less discount or ask the question, what can we do about it? I said no one, but there's two exceptions to that rule. Uh, in Florida, um, the Speaker of the House of Florida did get a copy of the boy crisis because he had three sons and, um, and then gave that to the Republican and Democratic leaders in the House in Florida. Uh, long story short, they drew up a bill uh, to address the fatherlessness issue, called, and they called it the fatherhood crisis. And, um, and every single Republican and every single Democrat 
in the House uh, uh, in the House of Representatives in Florida uh, voted for um, that fatherhood crisis bill to, devo to, to devote $75 million to developing programs to inspire fathers to be more involved in the family. Um, and then that also followed uh, with the um, with Governor DeSantis signing that into law. Uh, also, Kentucky has made the single most important thing that happens after divorce that deprives our families of fathers. Kentucky has, um, to the credit of Kentucky, passed an equal shared parenting law that says, you know, short of there being some major problem with the mother or father, uh, the initial presumption is that both parents will be equally involved with the children after divorce. There are four things that lead to children doing well after divorce. Um, and the most important of those four are equal amounts of time with father and mother. So there's something being done, but by and large, the boy crisis and fatherlessness is being uh, avoided, even though it just is right here before us um, with, you know, with, and it replaces so many other theories uh, because all the other theories are things that girls and women are, are, are exposed to, but they are not doing the mass shootings. So Warren, as we've uh, discussed uh, in the past, both privately and I think on camera as well, um, you know, correlation doesn't necessarily mean causation, right? And so you're saying, yes, that six out of six of these mass school shooters, recent mass school shooters were uh, dad deprived, but how does that actually work? How can you be so sure that that is a factor? That is the, fa the most important factor. Yes. As you, as you look at um, dad deprivation, we, we realize that, um, that, that this is also the single biggest predictor of suicide, and mass shootings are both a homicide and a suicide. Um, we, then we look at more closely, we see it's the, uh, the, one of the biggest causes of mental illness in boys and drug addiction in boys and um, also the big, one of the biggest causes of uh, video game um, addiction. I'll give you a concrete example. That's, oh, first of all, bigger issue first about the correlation versus causation. Richard Warshock um, did, uh, wondered about exactly this too. He's a very famous psychologist, extremely um, academically oriented. And so he, um, he got together the uh, leading researchers from all over the world um, and also psychologists and said, you know, wh what is the, you know, what is the connection to boys that are having significant problems, both as mass shooters, but also um, in, in generally um, you know, mental health problems, uh, physical health problems, um, um, death from um, uh, overdose of drugs, uh, dropping out of high school, being unemployed, looking at every different measure. And they, they all came back this is 100% of academics, and if you know anything about academics, they can't agree on almost anything. Uh, but they all ended up agreeing on that the children that had the biggest problems uh, were ones that were um, um, after divorce or children raised by um, without without a dad involved. Um, and then if there was a divorce, um, the there were major problems that happened with children that had less than 30% of their time with their father significant problems that they had less than 40% and the children that did the best after divorce were ones that had equal amount of time with dads and moms. Now, this was studied not, and so then we looked at so 
socioeconomic variables because you know you could say well you know poor kids just don't do as well and maybe they don't have as much time with their dads it's actually you know the the proportion of people who are involved uh, with their fathers among in poor areas is actually um, slightly higher but um, but the more important thing is that when father when boys grow up in wealthy communities going to good schools um, they do worse in uh, math science and most of their other subjects um, if they go to good schools and do not have fathers, as opposed to children going to poor schools in poorer neighborhoods um, with a significant amount of father involvement. And so there's so many um, ways that these hundred researchers and psychologists um, cut the data. Um, and so um, to, to show that this was not about correlation, but it was actually about causation. And as I said, this is 100 researchers and academics who rarely agree on anything. Well, and I just, this is a little bit of an aside, but just in general, it's understood that the single best predictor of, I think, life success, right, societal success or so forth, or so forth is having, coming out of a two-parent household. Right. And that's, yes. you know, this is like left and right. Every all the sociologists agree on this, basically. Right. They do. And to be fair, the Democrats have paid no attention to this. And, you know, and I say this as somebody who's, you know, has, has a, you know, I was on the board of directors of the National Organization for Women in New York City. And I spoke all around the world um, on women's issues. And so I'm, I tend to be very empathetic to, um, you know, democratic thinking and point of view. But uh, when I went to Iowa uh, to talk to the Democratic candidates uh, about this issue, uh, there were some like John Hickenlooper and um, Andrew Yang uh, that very much agreed with me. But their campaign managers, when they started to see that their candidates were um, agreeing with me, uh, the, both of their campaign managers came up to me and said, Warren, we can't afford to have um, you know, our candidates uh, speak out on the importance of boys having father and uh, a lot of father involvement because we're afraid to alienate our feminist base. And I said, explain more. And they said, well, in divorce cases, um, our feminist uh, women want the option to be full time with their children or part time or to marry somebody new, start their life over again, move, move away. And I said they would want this even if it wasn't good for the children. And I already knew the answer to that because one of the things that had alienated me from the board of directors of now was discovering that children, um, that fathers play an extremely important role in the health of children. And they wanted the they, they wanted their feminist members to have options and they didn't want the father to have equal options um, to be able to remain involved in their life in an important way. And they also wanted the mothers to be able to be full-time um, mothers if they wanted to. And so today in the United States, 42% of mothers, women who have children, have those children without the father involved in the raising of uh, of the children. Sometimes they're involved for a couple of years in a live together situation, um, but the average live together parents, um, they only last three years after a child is born. And so the child almost invariably misses the father involvement after about three years on average. So you've mentioned, you know, you started mentioning some things that uh, happen through this dad deprivation. I learned that term from you actually. Um, and well, why don't you flesh that out for me a little bit more? 
Yes, when when dads aren't involved, here's here's the dynamic. Um, the dads and moms have about eight, nine different styles of parenting. Um, and the children that do the best are ones that have what I would call checks and uh, checks and balance parenting, where they, the mother may say something like, um, the child says, you know, can I, mom, can I climb the tree? And the mom says, well, maybe, sweetie, in a few years, but right now you're too young and you could fall and that could, tree could be dangerous. And, you know, dad, if asked separately, would say, well, you know, that's a bit high, but be careful. You know, I trust you to be careful. Um, and then, you know, mom and dad find out that the other, they've given the um, child uh, different instructions. And the, and so the dad very rarely says something like, you know, when children climb trees, they're able to assess what is, what is, what risk is, is too much and what risk isn't enough. Um, and, and that actually gets their, um, their synapses firing that increases their IQs. Well, I've never seen a dad explain it that way to a mom and moms can't hear what dads don't say. Uh, so dads need to read up on the types of things that they tend to do as, 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 as dads that lead to the children having an important balance that leads to them having having those risk-taking skills, knowing what's too much, what's too little. On the other hand, children need a life. They need to not have concussions, and they need the 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 insights of mothers as to you know where that risk can be um, um, averted. And so, a dialogue between the mother and father, like the mother and father saying, "Okay, here's what I agree to. Uh, we agree that the, you know that our son or daughter can climb the tree, but not up to beyond a certain point because uh, that would have too great a risk of a concussion if she or he fell." And dad, um, you can uh, you got to be out there underneath that tree to make sure the child doesn't fall um, and you can cushion the fall. And so that type of dialogue that leads to the child having the, the IQ advantages, the assessment of what's too much, what's too little risk taking of climbing the trees and, the, and having the safety of not having a concussion, a spinal cord injury, or even being killed from uh, falling out of the tree, that's where the children benefit. And as they hear, if, they, if they're in a really outstanding situation and they can hear mom and dad talk to each other with respect as opposed to yelling each other down and the dad saying, you're just gonna you know, make my son a sissy and the mom saying, you don't care anything about the health of our, you know, our son and you don't care if they die. You'd rather have him not be a sissy than be, you know, uh, then be killed, um, and you know, and and the and the, the child hears is really um, uh, each parent being blamed for disagreeing, as opposed to respected for their their perspective. Uh, those are the children that do the best. And this is just one of a number of different um, styles of different differences in dad style versus mom style parenting. Moms are far more likely to um, to be very praiseworthy of a child that maybe sings well, plays basketball well. You could be part of the NBA. Uh, you could, you know, you could you could be in the Olympics. You could be this way or that way. And then when the child wants to go to a party instead of going doing training for the in preparation for the Olympics, the mom says, "Oh yes, you can go to the party." Dad is more likely to say, "You know, sweetie, if you have this ambition to be on the, um, the you know the in the Olympics or you know son being in the NBA, um, you, this requires discipline." And you know, I'll support you. We'll hire somebody to tutor you if you want to put in these hours. But if you don't want to put in these hours, then you're just fooling around and wasting your time. You better be doing homework instead or something like that. And so the dads tend to do more boundary enforcement. Uh, what the data shows is, for example, that moms will put children set a bedtime at an earlier time. Dads will set a bedtime at a later time. 
but children raised predominantly by dads get to bed earlier, even though the bedtime has been set for later, because dads, when the children fool around or don't do their homework, uh, are much more likely to say, I'm sorry, the bedtime is nine o'clock. You didn't do your homework. That's your responsibility. You get a low grade. That's your responsibility. Um, And, you know, and, and, you know, the child, whereas the child would be more likely to be able to manipulate mom into, you know, it's, oh, it's 830. I know that's the bedtime, bedtime you set, uh, but I didn't get my homework done. You don't want me to go get in trouble with Mrs. Jones. Uh, She's going to be really, um, you know, give me a low grade. Okay, sweetie. Well, you have more time to do your homework. And so that's, you know, those tend to be examples of the differences between dad and mom style parenting. Moms tend on average to be more likely to set boundaries. Dads are more likely to enforce boundaries. And in their enforcement of the boundaries, they build the discipline for the child to accomplish the postponed gratification and the focus on the attention to detail. So dads, children raised predominantly by dads are far less likely to have ADHD because they're required to focus on the actual um, thing that they're doing, as opposed to being able to manipulate a better deal from the mom. Warren, you mentioned at the beginning, you know, that it's predominantly boys and young men that are doing these shootings, right? It's never women, or it is, it's unlikely to be women or girls. Now, I can hear the response to that, the kind of current societal response. They'll just say, well, that's just toxic masculinity for you, right? And so, you know, and, and I, I'm frank, and I'm seeing a lot of people just saying that, look, once again, toxic masculinity manifest. How do you respond to that? Here is the challenge with toxic masculinity, uh, the, the analysis of toxic masculinity. First of all, there's an, no one in their right mind who would disagree with the fact that a mass shooter is, is expressing toxic masculinity. The question is, how do we solve toxic masculinity? What is it about? Where is it, does it come from? Why are we hearing toxic masculinity from the same people who are also talking about male privilege? And there is toxic masculinity, but it doesn't come from male privilege. It comes from each generation having its war uh, for all of history and our um, and and Uncle Sam or some equivalent thereof in the society and the parents making, into, uh, make, making it mandatory that the boys um, prepare to, to be uh, what we call heroes. And the hero, calling a boy a hero when he goes to war is the social bribe we gave boys to be willing to be disposable. To, to, to be willing to die so the rest of the society could live. The good news is we're protected. The bad news is that in order to become a soldier, you have to get rid of all, all of your sensitivities. So you learn the lesson that your feelings don't count. Your feelings don't count because a war machine does not work most efficiently when everyone's feelings are being considered. So therefore, you have to keep your feelings to yourself. You have to keep your fears to yourself. Um, And that creates toxicities. And all those things do create inside of us uh, the inability to be fully human. Well, so that makes sense to me, right? But these young men, they're not necessarily all part of some war machine. In fact, you know, quite the contrary, right? In, In a number of cases, from what I'm aware of, at least. Yes, boys who are fatherless 
um, very frequently they are not likely to have that uh, that postponed gratification that emanates from the boundary enforcement. Therefore, they start not doing as well in school. They start feeling badly about themselves. The teachers aren't praising them as much. When they become teenagers and it's um, female male time, if they drop out of high school or they drop out of college, uh, women are not interested in dating losers. Uh, They want to date winners. And so the boy feels both um, he's a failure in high school, which is exactly what Ramos felt. Uh, He dropped out of high school. Uh, He couldn't um, connect with any um, girls and um, women. Um, He tried to use his guns to show, see how much of a man I am, to compensate for his vulnerability. Um, And so these types of things are are, um, happening so frequently with boys who do not have um, fathers to to teach them that postponed gratification. But that's not where it stops with the inability to, to, to accomplish things. It's what, when, when a boy doesn't accomplish things, girls aren't interested in him. He's not praised by his parents. He's not praised by his teachers. He starts cutting down on himself. He often withdraws into video games. Video games are actually very healthy at a, at a non-addictive level. But at the addictive level, when, when these boys feel that, well, let me stop actually here. I'll interrupt myself and share a real life experience I had with this. Um, I got an email about um, six months ago from a, a young man. And he said that um, I uh, that he was fatherless, and um, he lived with only his mother, and then and then lived with his grandmother, who had no men in, in her life, and then lived with his aunt, uh, his two aunts that had no men in their life. And he said he didn't even know who he was as a man. So he started withdrawing into video games, and he became so um, enmeshed in video games that he didn't even think of himself as a human being. He thought of himself as sort of something in that video game that interacted with the other people on the video games. And his only, his only quote, friends were the people who were playing the video games with him and against him and so on. And, um, and, he, and he protected himself from ever going outside of his home and getting out of that video game circle. And he said, I felt so ashamed of myself. I felt I had no structure, I had no purpose. And I was so angry at my mom uh, for not um, helping me get away from those video games. Um, And so he said, therefore, I joined 8chan, which is a fascist group, and that have produced two of the major mass shooters in the the world. And he said, I then wrote a 52-page manifesto to to do my own mass shooting so I could prove myself um, really to have an impact in, in the world after all. Um, And he said, I stumbled across your boy crisis book. And in your boy crisis book, it wasn't the data that persuaded me so much, but it was like you had outlined to to such a T what happened to me growing up without a dad, that for the first time in my life, I felt I was being seen and that somebody got me. And he said that had this enormous impact of dissipating my anger enough. I knew I was still screwed up, but it dissipated my anger enough to get over the desire to do the mass shootings. And he said, thank you for saving my life and the life of I don't know how many others. But I, so I, I arranged to call him and talk with him. And, and we had many um, Skype or Zoom calls. And in the process of doing that, he you know, talked to me about that he still had these enormous violent feelings toward his mother uh, for letting him do this and for not, you know, not bringing a father into his life. 
And I said, do you, what do you think? The, so I had him role play his mother um, to um, and 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 as as his mother role playing his mother, he said, I said, well, you know, what did you um, mom? What did you want to to do? Why were you doing this? And he said he was able to say role playing his mother. Um, I, I saw that this was the only way he was happy. Carlos was happy. Um, and so um, I wanted him to be happy. Um, I wanted to support his happiness. This is the only way I knew how to support his happiness. And I said, you know, um, I said, to, I asked him as his mother, is this because you loved Carlos? And he said, oh, my God. She said, oh, my God. He said that playing her. Oh, my God, I loved him so much. I would do anything for him. Would you make sacrifices for him? Of course, I would make sacrifices for him. And in that process, he began to see that his mother was not the problem, that his mother loved him deeply. But his mother thought that um, letting him do what he wanted to do was the solution as opposed to part of the problem. I mean, that's an incredible message to get. And then, you know, an interaction to get into. So there's this phenomenon right right now, and it's very interesting. And I just you're you're making me think about it now because you're you're giving me the sense that the a lot of the young men today are just you know have let's just say their self-esteem is being hammered and uh so and i i don't know if this is cause or effect or how it works but basically yeah you, you alluded to this earlier young men's iqs are lower than girls i mean girls are graduating from university more there's there's all these different statistics as i understand that show that men are basically kind of doing a lot poor, more poorly than they should be, than you might expect they would be doing. Absolutely. We have to look not at the, just the surface data. So for example, boys are dropping out of high school, much greater level than girls are. And, but that dropping out of high school means a 20% unemployment rate among those boys in their 20s. A boy with an unemployment rate that's very high, who's also 66% more likely to live with his parents, often in his parents' basement. Can you imagine a boy being at a party? Maybe he's attractive. A girl or a woman is attracted to him. Uh, they start talking and she says, um, you know, well, tell me about what you do. Well, I've dropped out of high school. Oh, well, I'm still really attracted to you. You're, you know, maybe he's tall, handsome, good looking, whatever. Um, you know, oh, well, um, can we maybe go at, get leave this party? Oh, sure, you can come back. Um, I live in my parents' basement. Um, so you, you imagine the reaction of 90% of 90 plus percent of women, even to a good looking tall guy um, saying that, you know, that and maybe especially if the girl or a woman is be looking for father material, um, most girl and women, girls and women looking for father material are not searching the parents basements and unemployment lines for future father material. So these boys feel both rejected in terms of relationships and also rejected in terms of sexuality. Um, and so the, the dropping out of high school has more impact than just dropping out of high school. Um, it has impact on, every, on his pride, his self-esteem, his ability to be attractive, um, both relationship-wise and sexuality-wise sexuality to women. And so that often leads a boy into depression, into video game addiction, into drug addiction, into becoming overweight. 
If he's a um, smaller boy, he'll, he'll sometimes get into something called bigorexia, which is taking hormones to make himself look, you know, strong and doing weightlifting and so on, all of which is to cover up a, a really low self-esteem. And we are reinforcing this in school all the time. Um, you know, if, if one, um, I talk to boys in high school and they say that, that what they hear about in school when it comes to male-female issues is toxic masculinity without any under, understanding of the sacrifices that males made that led to that toxicity. They hear about the patriarchy. The world is dominated by a, patri uh, by a patriarchy um, in which men made rules to benefit men at the expense of women. Well, let's dissect that. The world was not dominated by a patriarchy. It was dominated by the need to survive. And in order to survive, both males and females were restricted in their roles. We told women, your job is to raise children. We told men, your job is to raise money. If a woman couldn't raise children, she felt like she wasn't a woman. If a man couldn't raise money, he didn't feel he had the right to even ask for, for love. And so we, we are constantly giving boys a negative image of themselves uh, that is leading to a low self-esteem, that is leading to their co needing compensations, like, I, you know, I have a rifle, therefore I'm strong, um, as opposed to I have a rifle um, because maybe, maybe I have a rifle because um, I don't feel strong enough in myself. So let me look at what the reasons for that rifle are. And the fact that the patriarch was mothers and fathers both making rules um, to, to help um, their children survive and dividing roles. And those roles that men had and that women had restricted men to feeling that when children were born, they had to give up their dreams of being a musician, a writer, an artist, an elementary school teacher. I've started 300 men's groups and there are thousands of men that I've seen saying, I wanted to be an elementary school teacher or I wanted to be a musician. But when we had our children, I knew that I couldn't, I couldn't support myself being that musician or that uh, elementary school teacher. So I gave that up and I went into administration. I became a principal or superintendent of schools. And then the feminist movement told me, ah, I dominate um, education, even though there are more women in education, as opposed to understanding that I gave up my dream of loving to teach, to teach and be with, with children, to do something I didn't like, administration and all the conflicts between parents and teachers and students and so on, and all the, uh, and, and all the paperwork. I did something I hated because I wanted to give um, a better, um, more income to my family so they could live in a better school. None of that is being appreciated about boys in school today. They're being criticized for their sacrifices as opposed to honored for their sacrifices, but also given options uh, to have more options than they didn't that, that they, than they had in the past. So I guess the big question, Warren, is, you know, how did this happen? Right. Like, where did this come from? So it's kind of I mean, you're describing as and this is certainly in the boy crisis, which is a book that I recommend to everybody. I mean, there's, it, it's kind of like an entire war on masculinity, if you will, like in society. Right. Yes. Yeah. And, and it's not just recently the war on masculinity, the, the, the attacks of males as if they they are living by their self-interest. That has really emanated. Um, deeply from something that I have to blame myself for being a part, of, credit myself and blame myself for being a part of. As you know, um, 
I was on the board of directors of the National Organization for Women in New York City for three years and spoke all around the world on women's issues. But I, I trusted that part of the women's movement that appeared to be saying at that time, some version of Helen Reddy, I am woman, I am strong. And the more recent version of feminism has been, I am woman, I've been wronged. Um, and the, the feminism always had a propensity to blaming men, but, it's, but that blaming of men for all the problems and um, has been um, hon honing victimhood as a, small, uh, as a fine art that feminists have been doing recently and, and creating these enormous protective spaces for women. If you're in high school, if you're in college and you say something that um, might offend a woman, a woman will say, um, oh, you didn't give me a trigger warning. Um, or if you know, you, a, a man puts his arm around a woman and, and without asking permission first, he is literally subject to the possibility of being called a sexual harasser. And so, but nobody is training our daughters to share responsibility for that sexual rejection. And nobody is blaming the women that do take an initiative or calling them sexual harassers. So we're leaving, uh, we're leaving boys caught between a rock and a hard place, um, told that if they, um, if they take initiatives too quickly, um, they're sexual harassers. If they don't take them quickly enough, they're wimps, um, but no one is telling our daughters, it is your responsibility to, to risk sexual rejection as often as men are. And the current version of feminism and the current version of education and school teachers is not teaching us to respect women by having them take equal responsibilities. It is much more prone to be to blaming men uh, than it is to um, having a shared um, responsibilities for the risks of rejection. And so, to, you know, to coming back to this most recent shooting and others, um, you know, this is obviously the prime example where one, where the man is, will be blamed and all these, as I said earlier, toxic masculinity will be cited. And, you know, some of these other, uh, uh, you know, reasons that you outlined earlier are called, but there, you know, and it probably won't be obvious to many people that that the sorts of things we've just been talking about are actually, you know, a central issue here. Absolutely, and and so let me really be very practical and you know talk to the maybe the moms that that that, that is at home. Um, I think of single moms as being probably the, the among the hardest working people in the country, and um, and yet I'm also saying that it's so important to have a dad in their life. Uh, the most important single thing, if you're a single mom listening to this. Is to um, is to discover the the differences between dad style parenting and mom style parenting because dad style parenting does a lot of do, is is prone to doing a lot of things that you might think um, is not honoring the child. So dads are much more likely, for example, to tease the child, to do roughhousing with the child, and so on. So understand how roughhousing leads to empathy. That's counterintuitive, but spend time reading about that because I know you want your child to be empathetic. And so, but what dads do to lead to that empathy with the combination of roughhousing and boundary enforcement is very important to understand. Dads are more likely to tease. When, the, when a dad teases a child, the child is more likely to cry. Understand why that teasing up to a point 
it is extremely helpful for a child to be able to pick up nuances of language, to be able to laugh at him or herself, to be able to have a much more sophisticated emotional intelligence. Um, and so when, when you do understand all that, and you let the father, the biological father that may not, may not be connected with that child very much now, when the biological dad knows that you need him, not just for the son, to best development, but also for your daughter's best development in more than 50 different areas of psychological growth and health and physical health growth. When you let a dad know he's needed, he will be much more likely to respond. Remember that every generation had its war. When we told men that they were needed, they were willing to die to respond to their, their being told that Uncle Sam needs you. When you say, I see now what the positive value of your roughhousing, your teasing, uh, your allowing our son or daughter to take a risk of walking to a lake and maybe getting lost and what that does. Um, then the dad will say, all right, if I can be appreciated now, I'll be back. But if the biological father is not able to be involved for some reason that is you know, beyond control, then I really encourage you to get your son involved in Cub Scouts. Cub Scouts, if you get if your son is attending consistently for two years or longer, the data is very strong that it in increases your child's character development. And I don't know a single mom who doesn't want her child, children, both uh, boys and girls, to have um, optimal character. Uh, Girl Scouts are obviously the female equivalent. Um, Boy Scouts um, are have deconstructed masculinity to give boys who accomplish things merit badges and um, help, help them feel good about themselves by focusing attention on themselves. Get them involved in not just sports, but what I call the liberal arts of sports, um, by, what I, by which I mean pick up team sports, organize team sports, and sports like tennis and gymnastics that, that require a focus on the individual discipline and, and indirectly as part of a team. Find out what the value of each of those types of sports are in developing your children to be um, optimal. Uh, make sure your children get involved in things like the Mankind Project. If you have any um, interest in any faith at all, um, get your children involved in a faith-based community. Make sure that the 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 um, the priest, the rabbi, the um, the um, minister, or the imam um, gets your son involved with other boys his own age and has them talk confidentially about the things that are bothering them. Um, boys keep their, their fears to themselves, and when they hear that other boys their same age have those same fears, it helps them feel much more secure that they, that they don't have to prove themselves by, out, you know, by, uh, by making believe they're strong or deepening their voice or getting tattoos or doing all these things that are superficial compensations for their insecurities. Those are just a few of the of the things you'll you'll see in the boy crisis book to get the kids involved and pay most attention to family dinner nights and know how to make sure that family dinner nights don't become family dinner nightmares and the one word that is most important is learning the skills of listening to your children combined with the skills of training your children to listen to you empathetic parents do not create empathetic children. Empathetic parents who are only empathetic create children who are self-centered thinking that only their needs are being paid attention to. 
So you have to both be empathetic and require of your children that they also listen to your perspective, don't interrupt your perspective, let you know that what they've heard from you until you are don't feel distorted and you do the same for them. But that's very crucial to the, the Boy Crisis book is the, is the importance of family dinner nights um, done in the right way. And in terms of, you know, broader policy, say as say at the state level, for example, um, as you described, what's, you know, there's been some policy that's related to this enacted in Florida, um, you know, to basically get dad involved, uh, increase dad involvement. But, you know, in this realm of challenging the, as you describe it, the dad deprivation, what kind of legislation or policy or something in, in that realm can be helpful? I'm sure you've thought about this. Absolutely. Uh, number one in Florida, what, uh, w one of the most important things is that they're doing is creating, spending money to um, actually create father involvement programs and to encourage the groups in Florida that are already involved in Florida involvement programs to giving them this uh, money for the staff to be able to do that more effectively. That's one example. Another, so what I said a minute ago about when men are told they're needed, you know, we've told men all throughout all of history that you're need that you're needed to be willing to die, to kill and be killed. We haven't told young men that you're needed now, mostly to love and be loved. We value your ability to love. We value your ability to parent. And very few fathers uh, want to be away from their children when their children are born. That most fathers experience the father's catch-22. They learn to love their children by being away from the love of their children. They used to be a local, a local sales representative for company X, Y, or Z. And now the children are born, they are required to, 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 to be a national sales representative in order to buy a better home and a better neighborhood and a better school district. And so they end up, in order to be a better father, being a father that's away from the children. Understand the data that I talk about in the Boy Crisis book that it, as to why a dad's time is worth more than a dad's dime. The moment the, your, your family gets to be somewhere between $50,000 and $70,000 of, of um, family income per year, once it goes past that amount, depending on where in the United States you live, uh, different standards of living, obviously, once it goes past that amount, the children that do the best do not benefit from an increased amount of money or increased amount of dime. They benefit more from an increased amount of time on the part of the fathers. Um, once fathers put on, begin to promote themselves, they begin oftentimes to develop what I call male makeup. Uh, they're making up the gap between the power they have and the power they want to have because they get caught up in the power machine and they forget that, wait a minute, I started out doing this. It's like a woman puts on a little bit of makeup to make herself look better, better and then she, she's overdoing the makeup. Um, so, you know, uh, earning money is good. Earning so much money that you don't have time for your children bad. I mean, so essentially you're saying that the best thing that legislation-wise to tackle dad deprivation is to just basically kind of push and encourage and educate around the value and the importance of father involvement. 
that's one of two things, one of a few things. A second, probably the second other absolutely crucial thing is what when the, when divorce happens. And what the only state in the United States who's addressed that in a way that's very productive is Kentucky. And what conduct, Kentucky has been the first state and the only state is at this point to pass legislation that says if there is a divorce, um, the, the children do best with an equal amount of parenting. And so the starting assumption, short of the, the father or the mother being proven to be, you know, an alcoholic that abuses the child or, you know, uh, that type of thing, short of those types of extreme circumstances, um, the, the, we will start out with the assumption that both father and mother need to be equally involved. In the Boy Crisis book, I talk about three other things that are very important that would that legislation can or cannot get involved with. Every parent needs to know it's really also important that the second must do after divorce in order for children to have an equal uh, to do almost as well as they do in an intact family is for the father and mother to be living uh, within 20 minutes drive time from each other. Because when they don't, oftentimes the children start resenting going over to the other parent's home and missing their best friend's um, birthday party or their soccer practice and learning the skills uh, that team play can, can contribute to them. And so you don't want that resentment to be created by living too far away. Number three, it's so important that the children not hear bad mouthing from dad to mom or mom to dad. Uh, because when you're bad mouthing the other parent, you are bad mouthing that half of the child that is the parent that you are bad mouthing. So you are not just bad mouthing the other parent, you are abusing the child. When a child looks in the mirror and hears, let's say that his father um, is a, a narcissist and a liar and um, irresponsible, um, and and then he sees that his, his nose or his eyes or his hair, or his body language is a lot like his dad he begins to fear that maybe he's a narcissist. Well, I am looking in the mirror. Maybe I am a liar. Well, I did lie about this. Maybe I am, um, you know, all these negative things he's heard his mom say about his dad. And, but he can't sh say to mom, mom, I'm beginning to fear about the, these things about myself based on what you said about dad. Well, I become the same way because he's afraid that mom might talk to dad about about that and then they get into a big fight and that he's already feeling um, by not having an equal amount of contact with mom and dad and the the opposite is true a dad bad mouthing the mom uh, even if you're a boy and you look in the mirror you see aspects of yourself that are like your mom and when you a dad bad, bad mouths his mom the same type of, of feeling occurs the fourth must do is very important we now know for the uh, in re, as of recent research uh, that children who do best after divorce, their parents go to consistent relationship counseling or couples communication counseling. And the um, and I, when the word consistent I emphasize because children parents when they only go to emergency counseling, usually in, in an emergency, parents are arguing their part of the argument, and um, and they're not listening to each other. When you're going to consistent counseling, a reasonably good counselor can help you both hear each other more fully. And what you're able to hear more fully when you're going to consistent counseling is your partner's best intent. Nobody intends to harm their children. The important thing in counseling is to understand how does your partner look at that what she or he is doing with the children 
um, that is leading them to behave with the children in this way and what things need to change and what things need to re can remain the same what things can you appreciate and what things can you say that might lead to certain modifications no oh, absolutely fascinating um, any final thoughts warren Yes, I think that the single biggest thing, I, I've, as you know, um, I've been doing a couple's communication workshops in the last um, you know, 30 years. And the most important thing to me that I've seen is that what we really need to do is to learn how to hear perspectives that we are not initially inclined to hear and to know how to be criticized by the people we love without becoming defensive. That's biologically unnatural. Um, but it, it was biologically unnatural because historically we saw the people criticizing us as an enemy. So in order to survive, we had to get up our defenses. That was biologically natural and functional for survival, but it's dysfunctional for love. And so that's the next evolutionary shift in our experiences of being human beings that we are able to do hopefully both for the people we love and also for people that have different political beliefs than, than, than we do. Well, Warren Farrell, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. you. You ask, as I've said before, such good questions and then you listen so attentively and caringly and it really, I, I think, brings out the best. Thank you all for joining Warren Farrell and me for this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kellick. The Epoch Times is growing quickly, and we're currently hiring an associate producer to join the Epoch TV team to work on both American Thought Leaders and Cash's Corner. It's a time of rampant misinformation and propaganda, and you'll be part of the solution as we bring back honest journalism. If you're interested or you know someone who might be a good fit, head over to ept.ms slash associate producer. That's ept.ms slash associate producer all one word. We look forward to hearing from you. Mm -hmm.